It's my joy and my honor uh, to bring the Word of God to you once again. In my time here at SALT, uh, I don't think I've ever struggled so much to craft a teaching. Never have I written, oh hi, never have I written a message in such a short amount of time either, and never have I had so much to teach you. Be prepared, we will go long tonight, and I have a lot to give you. Just a reminder of the book that we're in, as you can see from the graphic behind me. Yes, it is up there. We are in the book of Ephesians. Y'all can thank Tessa for making that, by the way. We're in the book of Ephesians. Now, Ephesians is a prison letter from the Apostle Paul to the saints in Ephesus. Man, tonight is going to be a fun night, isn't it? It's okay, it's okay. It is a prison epistle from Paul to the saints in Ephesus. That is, it was written by the Apostle Paul to the saints in Ephesus. Many scholars believe that it was a circular letter. That is, it was written to the saints in general, not to any particular church. And so they think it was really handed around within the region of Ephesus. And so it was to all the saints in general. And as Jeff uh, broke it down for us last week in his introduction of the book, it can be divided up into two major sections. The first three chapters and the last three chapters. The first three chapters would be something, what we would call something like gospel indicatives. Y'all know what it means to indicate something. An indicative is a statement of fact. That is, what are the facts of the gospel? That is what Paul is concerned with in Ephesians 1 through 3, the first half of this epistle. What are the facts of the gospel? What has God done? What is he doing? And what will he finally accomplish? The second half is what we might call something like gospel imperatives, such as it is imperative that you do this thing, which is to say that the format of the book of Ephesians goes something like this. That here are the facts of the gospel of God, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will finally finish. And in light of all of that, there are particular ways in which you must live. Well, we find ourselves at the beginning of that first half in the gospel indicatives. In fact, Ephesians 1 does not have a single command in it. It's all just statements. And we find ourselves in the, in the latter half of the first chapter of Ephesians, which deals primarily with the doctrine of salvation. Doctrine of salvation, what we would call soteriology. Soterios means to be saved, saved, salvation. The doctrine of salvation is soteriology. Last week's passage, as does this week's passage, contained the word predestination. And yeah, we're just going to air this out right now. Contain the word predestination, which may be conjured up discussions of Calvinism versus Arminianism. Maybe discussions in your small groups, discussions at home, discussions with your friends. Now these discussions are good and necessary when done in love and with humility. It is absolutely necessary that you understand how and why God saved you. But as a quick aside, 
Before we begin, I do need to say that I really have neither the, the education, nor the skill, nor the time tonight to deal with that debate of Calvinism versus Arminianism in a way which would be as detailed, fair, and exegetical as it would need to be. Uh, it's a study that I'm still presently doing at this moment in my own walk. It's not something which I have no opinions on. Um, it's just a study that I haven't finished yet because I'm 22. <laughs> it is good that we ask these questions. It is good that we deal with them. It is good that we are sharpened by one another on them. And as much as I would love to deal with it here, I, I, I'm just not good enough yet. And that is my failure in where I am at right now. I wish that I could bring you more. And so, I will not be dealing with those debates by name tonight. But if you would like to talk about them, talk about them in your small groups. Talk about them with me afterwards. I welcome and encourage the conversation so long as it's done in love and with humility. So here's what I am going to do tonight. I'm just going to tell you what the text says. And that's all you really need to concern yourself with. All you need to know is what does the text say? And if what I have to say, it does not matter one iota if what I have to say is Calvinistic or Arminianistic. What matters is if it is biblical. And if it is biblical, then it doesn't matter which dead theologian agreed with it. When you discover the truth of the word of God, forget about the name attached. You bow your knee and you love God for it. Just a reminder that Hitler believed in gravity too. Just because you disagreed with a person, don't throw out everything that they believed in. All I'm going to do is tell you what the passage says. I'm going to leave the categorizing of things to you and to your small groups and to your personal convictions, okay? So with that, let's turn to our text, Ephesians chapter 1. Jeff left off in verse 10, and so we're going to pick up in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, and I have to pick up speed, so I apologize. We are going to move very, very quickly. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And we're just going to pause there for right now. Paul is picking up in, in really what is an extraordinarily long run-on sentence. In the Greek, from about verse 3 through verse 14, is all just one sentence. And we step into that latter portion of this record-breaking run-on sentence in verse 11 with this rather ambiguous statement, In Him we also have been made an inheritance. Some of your Bibles might say we have obtained an inheritance, and it can be translated either way. Both are viable options. There are legitimate interpretations and legitimate translations. And through much study and deliberation, I believe that Paul 
phrased this verse intentionally, ambiguously, in order to capture and communicate both senses. So we're going to look at both of these. This can be translated, number one, in him we also have obtained an inheritance. That is, we have been given an inheritance in Christ. That is exegetically present in the text. Verse 14 says of the Spirit that the Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance. Verse 14 says that the Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance. It is our inheritance. We receive it. And of course we know that this is theologically correct. Right? We just went over last week that we are predestined to adoption. Adoption as children. Well, the the people who receive inheritances are children. So, of course, we would expect this. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5 also mentions this inheritance. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance. He tells us a couple things about this inheritance. It is incorruptible, undefiled, unfading. And listen to the next two things he says. Listen very carefully because this will come up again. This inheritance is having been kept in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Hold on to those. It is kept in heaven and you are protected by the power of God. We have an inheritance which awaits us. Now that's number one. We have obtained an inheritance. That's one translation. The other translation is this. It can be translated, in him we also have been made an inheritance. And this has a bit of a different rub. It is to say, we have been made as the people of God into an inheritance for somebody else. You understand? That's somebody else being God. And this is also present in the text. The end of verse 18 says that we are his inheritance in the saints. 14 says our inheritance. 18 says his inheritance. So you see, the saints are an inheritance, are the inheritance which God himself has obtained. And of course we know that this is theologically correct. Deuteronomy 4.20 Yahweh has taken you, that is Israel, and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own inheritance as today. Titus 2.14, we just finished Titus last year, right? Titus 2.14, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. So I want you to see The intro to verse 11, we have been made an inheritance. It encompasses two very beautiful truths. That we have an inheritance in Christ, but that also that God has an inheritance in us, his church, his bride, his people, his adopted children. But look at the rest of the verse. Those twin truths of our inheritance in Christ and God's inheritance in us is not an accident. It has always been the plan. It says predestined. 
Predestined is a completely unambiguous term. Predestined, unthwartably predestined by the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Somebody asked me last week, um, after salt, if everything that ever happens is predestined. Well, verse 11 answers that for us. Of course. In fact, that's God's name in the text. Look at it. You can put a hyphen between every word there. He is him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's his name tag. It's a very, very long name tag. You could, you could phrase it this way. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who predestines everything however he wants. He predestined the dual inheriting nature of salvation. And we're going to unpack this. Acts 2.23 and Acts 4.28. I won't read them for you. But Acts 2.23 and Acts 4.28 talk about salvation being the predetermined plan of God. He predetermined to adopt us. And if you are saved, he predetermined to adopt you. But since adoption comes only through redemption, comes only through reconciliation via the satisfaction of the wrath of God, then we must also say that he predetermined to give those up for adoption. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 6. We're going to spend a bit of time there. John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus praying, or Jesus speaking, I should say. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. The Father predetermined to give to the Son a people whom the Son might redeem, and that the Spirit might keep and purify to be His own inheritance. Turn to John chapter 17, just a couple pages to the right. Now John chapter 18 is the betrayal. The betrayal of Judas upon Jesus. John 17 then is the last thing that he says, that Jesus says in the Gospel of John before the beginning of his crucifixion. John 17 verse 1. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said... Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. 
They have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. But of those whom you have given me. For they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours. And yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. You can return to Ephesians. MacArthur summarizes this concept just masterfully. He says this, quote, The Father, in an expression of love to the Son, determined that He would create a world, that He would allow that world to fall into sin, that He would recover from that world a redeemed humanity, and that He would give that redeemed humanity as a bride to His Son so that that redeemed humanity forever and ever and ever could glorify His Son. You are in some sense an incidental part of a great act of love that is within the Trinity. Everything is to the glory of God. And that is exactly what we see in verse 12. Right? Look at the end of verse 12. It's to the praise of His glory. It's so that those who first hoped in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. And truly not just those who first hoped in the Christ, that is the Jews. But us as well. We are all for His glory. Your existence, your adoption, does not merely bring God glory as collateral damage. It was the purpose, it was the goal of the plan all along. But the plan, the plan of salvation, though determined in eternity past plays itself out in time and throughout history. And since we, the redeemed, we, the adopted, are often weak and frail and unfaithful, there must be a safeguard put in place to ensure that the plan is unportable. This is what Paul reveals as he ends this massive run-on sentence in verse 13. Look at verse 13. In Him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Sealed. Sealed as the ring of a king stamped into wax to authenticate its contents, your salvation, and to prevent anyone from breaking the seal and altering the contents. And when I say anyone, I mean absolutely anyone. When a king sealed something, not even the king himself could revoke the contents. We see this in Esther 8. We see it in Daniel 6. It is explicitly called out in those texts. And that is the image Paul is employing. No one, no one in all of existence can revoke your salvation. Not even the one who saved you. He has sealed you. And even if he didn't, revoking your salvation would make him a liar. Which again is an impossibility. 
Yet the seal of God is not the mere imprint of a ring into wax. It is the third person of the Trinity. God himself has sealed his people with himself in himself. It's as if he says, if you think I gave my son in vain for you, I give also my spirit for you. The father selects, the son saves, the spirit seals. The father selects, Son saves, spirit seals. We see the entire Trinity in this chapter. God will have his people. But for what are we sealed? Verse 14 answers. Who is given? That is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given as a pledge, your Bible might say, a down payment of our inheritance unto or until the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. We are sealed for our inheritance. Now what is the inheritance? Well, we know that it is a future thing. It is eschatological. It doesn't come until He finally redeems His people as His own possession. As verse 10 would say, administered in the fullness of the times. So it is in the future, but what is it? Well, you name it. Salvation. Final salvation, that is. Glorification. Every promise of God. Heaven. Final adoption. When you're adopted, you tend to go home with the family who adopts you. And yet we're still here and dad is up there. Reconciliation, final reconciliation. And above all, God Himself. And these you were sealed to inherit. That is the purpose of the seal, is to ensure that you will inherit them. You will absolutely inherit them if you are indeed in Christ. And to prove that, God gave a down payment of your inheritance. He chose you to be one whom he would adopt and give his inheritance. He sent his son to die to redeem you, to buy you a slave adopted as a son. And then to prove that he would not let you slip through his hands. He gave you an advance on the inheritance. A partial payment up front. He sent his very own spirit. And this is why it's absolutely, unequivocally impossible to lose your salvation. Why? Because those who believe are promised an inheritance. And God sends a seal of the promise and a down payment of the inheritance. The third person of the Trinity himself, the Holy Spirit of God. Who personally, actively, and unthwartably preserves his children. What a pitiful God it is who can damn you to himself but can't save you from his own damnation. Who can buy you but can't keep you. What kind of a, what kind of a sigma male is strong enough to keep his own salvation? What, what is the surpassing greatness of the power of the man who can keep his own salvation? 
To paraphrase Galatians 3, how arrogant can you be? Being first saved by God's grace, you think that you're kept saved by your own obedience? To quote MacArthur in what is probably the most succinct way to deal with this question of if a Christian can lose their salvation, he said simply this, if you could lose your salvation, you would. Your game isn't that good. Who do you think you are? His game is that good, but not you. All of your best works qualified you for salvation because you were damned. Jude is crystal clear about the power of God in salvation. The last two verses of Jude, the very brother of Jesus. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, might, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And see, Jude, the mature believer and slave of his own brother in God, responds in the exact way that he ought. Look at the end of verse 14. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. All of this is to the praise of his glory. Not only are you predestined to adoption for God's glory, you are kept unthwartably, invincibly in the hand of God, saved for God's glory and for his inheritance, and he will have his inheritance too. Now, what is Paul's response to all this theology, all this doctrine? All this headiness. His response is doxology. His response is worship. Paul's spoken a lot about praising God. Verse 3, verse 6, verse 12, verse 14, all talk about praising God. But now he stops talking about praising God. And he starts rehearsing it in front of us. By rehearsing his own prayer life in front of us. Look at verses 15 and 16. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Paul praises God, he says, for this reason too. Well, for what reason? He explains that that this isn't only a reference to their sealing, though that is the most direct thing he was just talking about. But look at the reasons he gives. He talks about their faith in Christ, their love for all the saints. That goes beyond just being sealed. That's all of salvation. Which is to say that he's praising God for everything he's just explained in the whole chapter. For the predestination... Praises God for the adoption. Praising God for the redemption. Praising God for the inheritance. Praising God for the sealing. Praising God for the down payment. And he says, I don't cease giving thanks for you. It's just lavish gratitude. It's overflowing gratitude for the finished work of salvation. But then he switches gears. And he moves from, from salvation to sanctification. 
He thanks God for what he has achieved for everyone who believes in the past. And now he asks God to progressively purify those who believe. Look at verse 17. This is what he prays for. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the full knowledge of him. Notice that last phrase, in the full knowledge of him. There's been a recurring phrase throughout the first chapter of Ephesians. We see it in verse 3, 4, 7, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 15. Almost be easier to list the verses. He doesn't say it. And it is this phrase. In Him, or in Christ, or in the Beloved. But now, now it's in the full knowledge of Him. The LSB brings this phrase out many times throughout the New Testament. Colossians 1, 9 through 10 particularly comes to mind. It says this, and, and take note of where and how many times the phrase, the full knowledge, appears. Colossians 1, 9 through 10. For this reason also, since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the full knowledge of his will in all wisdom and understanding. By the way, wisdom and understanding, very similar to what we see in our text, wisdom and revelation. He continues, so that, here's the reason, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and multiplying in the full knowledge of God. This phrase, this concept, the full knowledge, growing in the full knowledge of God, it is the bookends of sanctification. You want to grow in Christ? Grow in the full knowledge of Him. Do you want to know if you're growing in Christ? Are you multiplying in the full knowledge of Him? And by the way, notice that this is a cyclical pattern. If it begins with growing in the full knowledge of Him, and it ends in the full knowledge of Him, and everything between there is walking in a manner worthy, pleasing God in all respects, all of that is sanctification, practical holiness. If it begins and ends in the full knowledge of Him, it just repeats over and over and over. You grow in the full knowledge of Him and that causes you to be sanctified. That also causes you to multiply in the full knowledge of Him. Which just starts it over again. And you just keep going and going and going. Paul is praying for the sanctification of the Ephesians. That they would become more like Christ in their practical conduct. In their beliefs. In their emotions. In their loves. In their actions. In their thoughts. That everything would be submitted to Christ. This is not the finished work of Christ upon uh, accomplished by salvation. It is the progressive work which the Spirit does and performs in us as we mature in Christ. And the particular cause of this perfecting is not merely found in Christ, but is found in the full knowledge of Christ. That, by the way, also does not just mean intellectual knowledge. It is the same word used for intimate knowledge as Adam knew his wife. It is experiential knowledge. It is intimate knowledge. It is knowledge of the whole being of a person. Now some translations say of Ephesians 1.17 the spirit of wisdom and of revelation as if it's the Holy Spirit. 
I really don't see how that would be possible um, since Paul just said that the Spirit has been given as a seal to all believers. So I don't know why he would then be praying that the Spirit be given to the people he just said have the Spirit. It seems a little nonsensical to me. But I think it is a translator's dilemma and I'm sure that uh, there's something going on there in Greek that I am just too stupid to understand. Uh, so I will leave that to them, regardless of the rendering. Regardless of the rendering. This is most certainly a plea to the Father that he would give the Ephesians wisdom and understanding of himself. And we see what Paul wants them to understand. And he cites a list in verses 18 and 19, if you'll look with me. So that you... The eyes of your heart having been enlightened, we'll come back to that, will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of the might of his strength. The eyes of your heart being enlightened. Focus there with me, if you will. The prerequisite for growing in the full knowledge of God. So that you will know what is the hope of his calling, the riches of his inheritance, the power toward the saints, all of that. The prerequisite for all of that is having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Some of your versions might say the eyes of your understanding. The word is cardio, from which we obviously get the English word cardio. Cardiac arrest, things like that. It's a reference back to salvation. Paul is praying for their sanctification, but their sanctification flourishes out of the capabilities and capacities which God has furnished them with in salvation. Let me explain. The eyes of your heart being enlightened, that phrase, is a reference back to a very particular and lesser known aspect of salvation. And it's called regeneration. Or more popularly, it's called being born again. By which God, in an instant, in some sense, makes you a second time. If you are a Christian, you are a different sort of being. He makes you not just a creation as he did before, but 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, He makes you a new creation. Particularly, now there are, are many things which... God makes new in regeneration. But particularly the thing that Paul is calling out is that your mind is made new, what the Bible would call your heart. See, we don't talk about this very often, but the fall has an effect on your mind, on your psychology. Let me show you just one way. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 15. I'll read it to you. A natural man, that it is an unregenerate man. A natural man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined. Of course, he's spiritually dead. Why would we expect him to be able to examine them? But he who is spiritual examines all things, yet he himself is examined by no one. Such an unregenerate person, someone whose eyes have yet to be enlightened, cannot understand God's word. 
It is an incapability and an impossibility. Yet we, as the Ephesians, have had the eyes of our heart enlightened by the regenerating power of God. This regeneration, our second birth, allows us to know a number of things. And Paul lists a few. And this is his list in 18 and 19. Firstly, what is the hope of his calling? This is only for those whose eyes God has enlightened. The unregenerate world stands absolutely and unequivocally without hope, soggy in their condemnation. Secondly, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? That is, God's inheritance in you, the saints. Um, My grandmother passed away recently and left all of her possessions to the family. And as we were... My grandmother's a rather odd woman. Um, As we were going through her belongings, we found a little black tube with a, a gray lid. Just a little cylinder thing. And inside discovered that it was filled with teeth. Yeah. Love you too, Grandma. Probably the teeth, probably baby teeth from my mom and my aunts. Uh, What I would call a rather disturbing inheritance. And you might think that if God has us, if God has you as an inheritance that maybe he'd like to trade up and get the teeth instead. (laughs) But no, look at the text. He considers his church, his children, his bride, an inheritance rich in glory. He is so pleased to have you as his inheritance. And he wants you to understand that as well. And finally... By God enlightening the eyes of our heart. Paul prays that we would know. Verse 19. What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of the might of his strength. It's a rather confusingly worded verse. You could phrase it this way. I think is is more helpful. What is the surpassing greatness of his power. Which is in proportion to the working of the might of his strength. All of which is toward us who believe. And I'm sure you notice that Paul is just piling on adjectives. He's just heaping on as many words as he can think of to describe the the bigness and the hugeness of God. He uses four Greek words for power. Power, dunamis, from which we derive dynamite. That was not at all what he was thinking. Dynamite was not invented by the time Paul was writing it. But it is where we eventually derived the name. He uses the term working, energia, from which we get energy or energize. Might, kratos. Yes, boys, I think like kratos from the game. <laughs> and strength, issues. I didn't find any fun fact about that one. (laughs) Paul is just rifling through the Greek dictionary, trying to find enough superlatives to describe the, the majesty and the might and the bigness and the hugeness of God. And he just can't. So he tells a story. 
And that takes us through the end of our chapter, verses 20 through 23. Which he worked, that is the power of God, which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the power of God toward you. Not only the power which raised Christ from the dead, Not only the power which seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, but the power which exalted him far above all rule and put everything in subjection under his feet. This is power beyond power. This is deity. And this power is for you. It is toward those who believe. Remember Paul's prayer. He does not pray that God would... Give us his power. He prays that we would know the power which is already toward us. That we would know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. And let me just show you one way in which this power is towards us. Okay, Verses 22 and 23. He put all things in subjection under his feet. Take note of all of the anatomy. He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Listen, if Christ is the head of the body, but the church is the body, then it is also true that we, the church, have died with Christ, that we have been raised with Christ, that we've been seated at the right hand of the Father and have had everything put in subjection under our feet, for we are the feet. I can't even unpack for you what that means. All I know is that it's in the Word of God. This is the God who adopted you The Father King, the Redeemer, our Elder Brother, the seal and down payment of our inheritance. Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And this is the prayer of His Apostle. That you know who this God is. What He has in you and what you have in Him. And that you may be propelled, as Washer has said, into countless years of piety. And that we may shout with the witnesses of old and confess even with Job, O Yahweh, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to grow in patience with all of the Difficulties that have been thrown at us tonight and all the distractions. God, I pray that you would minister your heart, minister your word to the hearts of all your children here. God, would we love your word? Would we just 
See and would you illuminate to our hearts the meaning that we would understand and that we would just believe you as children believing their parents, believing their father. Lord, we love you and we praise you in your name.